0: Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Julie Lung, author of the picture book biography The Fearless Flights of Hazel Ying Lee. And we're going to be talking about that book, as well as the folktale collection Tongues of Jade by Lawrence Yep. Uh, but first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. And I thought since St. Patrick's Day is almost here, and the fact that my mother's last name was Katie before she got married, and my father's mother was an O'Brien, I thought I'd read a poem from A Child's Treasury of Irish Rhyme, which was compiled by Alice Taylor. And this one, which is an anonymous poem, is called Mr. Nobody. Mr. Nobody. Mr. Nobody. I know a funny little man, as quiet as a mouse, Who does the mischief that is done in everybody's house. Though no one ever sees his face, yet we can all agree That every plate we break was cracked by Mr. Nobody. 'Tis he who always tears our books, who leaves the door ajar, Who pulls the buttons from our shirts, and scatters pins afar. That squeaking door will always squeak, for, this is plain to see, We leave the oiling to be done by Mr. Nobody. Tis he who brings in all the mud that gathers in the hall. Tis he who lets the front door slam and scribbles on the wall. When we can't find the scissors or have lost the back door key, the one to blame in every case is Mr. Nobody. We know he cracked the window and broke the china plate. We know he left the kitchen floor in such a dreadful state. We know his faults and failings, his sins are plain to see. And so we always put the blame on Mr. Nobody. My guest today is Julie Leung, author of the Mice of the Roundtable middle grade series, Who Did It First? 50 Scientists, Artists and Mathematicians Who Revolutionized the World and her picture book biography, Paper Sun, the story of Tyrus Wong, Immigrant and Artist, which I had the pleasure of reading. Her latest book is another picture book biography called The Fearless Flights of Hazel Ying Lee. You can find her website at com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Julie.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. As I
0: mentioned, your, your latest picture book is another biography book, uh, The Fearless Flights of Hazel Ying Lee. Can you talk a little bit about uh, who Hazel is and uh, what this book is about?
1: Happy to. So Hazel Ying Lee was the first Chinese-American woman to fly for the U.S. military. And uh, she flew as part of the WASP program, a uh, program that started in World War II when most of the men had been sent overseas, so they needed to have more capable pilots sending the planes back and forth in the U.S. And so, you know, they just needed able bodies. So they actually started a program for, to teach women how to pilot these planes. And Hazel stood out to me um, in particular because I was going to the Museum of Chinese in America often. This is a wonderful museum in uh, Lower Manhattan in uh, New York City that I often went to for sources of inspiration. And I had just finished writing uh, the picture book that you had mentioned, Paper Sun, and I was looking for something else to write about. And at this museum, there's this big wall of just a ton of Chinese Americans who have contributed to American society. You have, you know, um, scientists, musicians, and artists like Tyrus as well. And then, you know, there was the a portrait of Hazel. And she kind of stood out to me. There was just this sort of look in her eyes. This very bold, brassy, you know, fearless, essentially, um, which ties into the title look. And I wanted to know more about her. So, I started doing some preliminary research and I ordered the documentary called A Brief Flight about Hazel Ying Lee. And the more I found out about her, the more I realized that she was going to be the next person I wanted to write about, if only because she had died young. Um, she was one of the few women that actually died in active service uh, as part of the WASP program. And the fact that when her fa- family first tried to bury her, the cemetery did not want to bury her in the place that the family had chosen because it was in a whites only area. And the family actually took it up all the way to president Roosevelt in protest to make sure that she could be buried where they had selected. And I just think, you know, it was a, not a typical picture book biography in the sense that I think oftentimes you kind of want to tie it in a very nice, neat note um, that everyone lived happily ever after. And they were celebrated for everything that they kind of contributed. And it was um, a, more of a difficult subject because she did die young. She died in a terrible accident when um, the planes that she were flying to, the air traffic control tower um, mistakenly gave it the same direction to two planes. One was hers and one was the other pilot. And so they actually collided midair as they were landing and um, Hazel was trapped in the uh, the fire. So it's just like, a, it's a very sad story. But at the end of the day, like just her life was so bright and vivid and vivacious, like everything that I learned about Hazel made me want to tell her story. And so she became sort of kind of a spiritual guide, I think. I wanted to make sure that someone like her was memorialized and commemorated in that way.
0: And the value of books like this is stories like this that might otherwise get lost or sort of um, shuffled under, get introduced or reintroduced, and especially to young readers who can start looking on their own and getting more information. It can be even a jumping off point.
1: Absolutely. And I think it says a lot, you know, over the past few weeks, I think a lot about what it means to be an American patriot and the idea of Hazel, even at a time when you know Chinese Americans were actively being discriminated against, chose to join essentially the American military, even though she never was awarded or afforded any honors that, you know, said that she was a military um, personnel. She was, effectively, these women who flew as part of the program were flying for the U.S. military. And still, she stood up and fought for the country. And despite the discrimination that was happening day to day to her own people, and I think that says a lot about what she saw in the potential of this country and what it meant to be an American. And I really hope particularly in these days where there's so much anger and so much disruption and just sort of angst about what it means to be an American, that it helps to sort of look at stories like Hazel's and realize that, you know, the ideals of this country are exactly that ideals and that are, that take, you know, sacrifice and caretaking you know, the idea uh, is um, kind of all up to us to redefine. Um, I don't know if that made any sense, but hopefully it does.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. That This is very much an American story. Now, I'm wondering, the, you, you talked about the research uh, process, you know, uh, of the family looking at other things. And I'm wondering, like uh, you did with the book uh, Paper Sun, I mean, it's it's one thing to take information and gather facts and things like that. But, you, you know, putting it into a form, especially for younger readers, you still want to make it, you know, interesting and accessible. You still have to tell a story, in other words, which I thought you did a, a really wonderful job in Paper Sun. So what, what is that process like to sort of take this all these sort of different, this information, but then take it and then put it and, you you know, to actually create a story out of that.
1: Yeah, I often liken um, picture book writing to writing a very long poem and trying to condense someone's life into like 1500 words, 2000 words, like it is quite difficult. Um, When I wrote Paper Sun my primary source was really actually the Wong family. You know, Tyrus had three daughters, all living, who spend a lot of time taking care of their father's legacy, you know, maintaining his art, making sure that his name is out there. Because Hazel died in her early 30s, she had no children. And so she doesn't necessarily have that person or family members that are actively working. I actually did get to chat with Hazel's niece over the phone a little bit. And it was actually w- wonderful, you know, like she kind of sent me photos of the a Medal of Honor that President Obama awarded the WASP, I think, in 2008. And so, you know, she does have, you know, there are artifacts that exist, but either because, of, you know, Hazel wasn't necessarily an artist, so there isn't necessarily, you know, artifacts to maintain, there was a lot less primary source material for hazel's story so i did rely on a lot of you know research and kind of the way that the wasps were written about in general i did a lot of reading uh there's a wonderful um i think it's called the women with the silver wings but let me double check for you Yes. Okay. Ashley got that right that time. So there's some wonderful source materials about the WASP program itself and what it was like to train under those conditions at the time. So I incorporated a lot of that into um, Hazel's story, as well as like the one documentary um, that's directed by Alan Rosenberg, who I also was able to um, do some primary outreach to. We emailed back and forth. He reviewed the manuscript that I had written in the early stages to make sure that it was factually accurate. So it's great. I think for all of my picture books, I always kind of want to establish at the very least like two to three people, like actual people who could provide me anecdotes that I wouldn't be able to find otherwise, um, either via a book or the internet. And so I was very lucky with both Hazel and Tyrus that I was able to have a few just, you know, conversations on the phone, photos and sort of personal anecdotes to draw from.
0: Oh, well, that sounds really neat. Really neat. Oh, I, I, I don't think I have it written down here. Who's the illustrator for this book?
1: The illustrator is Julie Kwan.
0: And what's the? i was always curious uh, with the picture books. Was there a process? Was it just you provided the text and she did words, or was there any collaboration with that at all? Or was it sort of a, a separate thing and you got to see the pictures um, after the fact?
1: Yeah, this is an, um, a very frequent question I get as a picture book author, and that oftentimes I don't um, I don't collaborate with the artists at all, both with Chris Sasaki, who uh, illustrated Paper Sun, and Julie Kwan. Um, I write the manuscript, I deliver it to the editor, the editor does the changes and does the pagination, you know, essentially dictating whether or not, you know, we should jump to a new page at this paragraph or over the other. And then after that process is done, then it gets sent to the illustrator and then the illustrator sort of um, goes through and kind of creates on their own. It's a very um, siloed process. Occasionally there will be questions from the illustrator back to me about certain things. I think um, Chris uh, had questions about the calligraphy in paper sun and Julie um, had sort of some questions about uh, I think like where to sort of source a few photographs, but Ultimately, it's, it's very much a siloed process. And I didn't actually get to talk to Chris um, until we actually started doing events together on the West Coast. But, you know, despite all that, uh, both the illustrators have done, inc- I couldn't, uh, even if we, ne- like, even if I talked to them, I don't think, like, the end product would have been any better because both of them, I think, really, truly nailed the spirit of what I was going for. You know, one of the things I always love to point out in Paper Sun is how, like, lovely, Um, Chris's illustrations are not only because of the way that he draws the actual event itself, but he adds a sort of layer of poeticism to it. So if you notice where the sun is positioned on each of the spreads, they always kind of reflect where Tyrus and his opportunities lie. So in certain where, where things are kind of when Tyrus is facing a struggle. The sun is actually, you know, further away or divided and um, separated from him by a tree branch Uh, when he's, you know, when he spots a really big opportunity, like the sun grows brighter and, you know, it's things like that, that, you know, no amount of direction could have gotten there. I think it's very much like the illustrator bringing their own magic to the manuscript. Likewise with Julie Kwan, like I think my favorite spreads are those that um, depict Hazel in the sky. Just having done so much research, this was a woman who only ever wanted to fly. Um, She faced so many obstacles. um, Some of the stories that never actually made it into the picture book, um, just because it was a lot to explain and really, really hard to kind of encapsulate in such a short time. So right at the outbreak of um, the Sino-Japanese War, and for those who don't um, know, Japan invaded uh, China in the early 30s as part of World War II. Later, it kind of rolled into World War II, but in of itself, it was its own active, provocative attack. Hazel actually flew back to China and tried to join the Chinese air forces to defend China, which I just think was, again, like, so brave of her but also at the same time i always think it's so interesting in that she saw herself both as chinese and american like wherever it didn't matter to her she wanted to be in the sky and she wasn't allowed she actually got relegated to like desk duty instead and then they had to escape when the japanese invaded and they were like stuck in hong kong for many years before she came back to the us and um then was also just you know helping to try to find the war effort on China's behalf on state side. So she was like trying to raise money to send supplies back to China during that time before the WASP program even started, before America even entered World War II with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Hazel was already sort of trying to aid the countries against the Axis forces. So, yeah, it's there's so much to Hazel's life that I think, you know, in that question that you ask about, like condensing and kind of how do you capture someone's life into such a small space? It's very hard. It's, you know, oftentimes I kind of write, I think, with an idea. I usually have the beginning. and I usually have the end very clear in my mind. And then the details of one's life. That's the hard part is like what sort of contributes to that end feeling that I want you to walk away from. So, if you notice both with Paper Sun and with Hazel, they send that both picture books end in very mirrored images. The first spread and the last spread in Paper Sun depict, you know, Tyrus Wong on an ocean. And the last spread talks about him facing the ocean that he traveled to when he was a little boy, but now he's facing back flying a kite same thing with hazel's book you know we start off with hazel kind of running around town looking at the sky and then the last spread is um a girl an unnamed girl at her grave looking at the sky herself and so you know again like this is also julie and chris's magic at work but it's also you know something that i purposely always like to sort of try to do with my picture book is this sort of circular mirror image of beginning to end um and that's kind of how i write i guess
0: well, i've often said in this podcast i don't think people appreciate it enough how difficult it really is to write a picture book they often think because it's a shorter book that it's very easy but it's not that at all i think what you said um, akin to writing poetry is very much on. um is there a passage from the book you'd like to share
1: sure so i've think i've um uh, shared share this before, but again, it is my favorite spread. I think in the entire book, not only because Julie did such a wonderful job with what her illustrations, but it's definitely the piece that made me think throughout, like the writing process, throughout, you know, the promotion process of this book. You know, because Hazel faced so much discrimination, not only for being a woman, but also a Chinese woman at a time when Chinese Americans were considered second-class citizens. I often You know, this is not a factual anecdote. There is no letter from Hazel Ying Lee that says, this is the way I feel. But I've kind of taken that small artistic liberty of assuming that this might be how she felt in the sky. And the idea that, like, you know, from tens of thousands of feet in the air, like, that is the one place that she could be without being judged, or assumed to be anything other than, you know, who she was. So this is a spread that I wrote. um, And it's a wonderful spread where Hazel kind of looks at the horizon. And I say, No one could see her eyes, hair, or skin color when Hazel was thousands of feet above. Up here, people were just tiny specks against a vast land. And inside her cockpit, Hazel felt like a dragon chasing down the sun. She leaned into the wind, pushing her plane to go faster. She looked at the horizon and willed the world to move forward. And I call back to that idea of willing the world forward later in the book um, when, you know, Hazel has died and her family is trying to fight these, you know, discriminatory practices in order to bury her. And, you know, in essence, you know, her death allowed them to push the world forward and to break these laws and, not break these laws, but like to take down these discriminatory laws. And I think it says a lot about who she, like her sacrifice to this country. Hazel's life not only was in sacrifice of this country, but it also inspired her family to fight against the discriminatory practices at the time.
0: Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you for sharing all of that. Now I understand uh, that your uh, other picture book, Paper Son, uh, recently won an award.
1: Yes, um, at ALA Midwinter, it was announced. It won the Asian Pacific American Award in the picture book category, which was honestly the probably the biggest award I've ever gotten in my life. So it was really exciting. And the fact that librarians picked the book also was really meaningful to me. I grew up um, basically at the library, and so it was really meaningful.
0: Oh, yes. I was, if you have the librarians on your side, you're good. <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh well, congratulations on that definitely. Now, the book you picked as uh that we're going to talk about today is uh, actually a a collection of stories. Uh, it's called uh Tongues of Jade and was written by Lawrence Yep and it was published in 1991. Uh for readers who are haven't had a chance to read this yet who might be unfamiliar with this book, can you talk a little bit about uh what it is?
1: Well, first Backing up a little bit, how I even got this book, this was a gift from one of my parents' restaurant patrons. So when my parents first immigrated to the U.S., uh, they opened a Chinese restaurant in West Point, Georgia. And, you know, being early immigrants, basically the entire family has to work at the restaurant. My grandmother washed dishes and I ran the cash register and did all my homework at the cash register. And uh one of our Repeat customers came in one day and kind of handed me this book because he noticed that I was I would, you know, do a lot of reading at the cash register. And it was Tongues of Jade by Lawrence Yep. And how this one differs from a lot of Lawrence Yep. And he's again, I can't speak highly enough of him. Like he changed my life. Like he was one of the first Chinese American young Chinese-American juvenile fiction authors that I was able to read growing up. And his his in, uh, influence is profound on my life. I read all of his books, um, but this one was the first. And so that's the one that I picked. And I also picked it because it's not necessarily his own original work. Um, I believe this is his, his interpretation of a collection of folk tales. It was collected in the 1930s by a man named John Lee, who went into Oakland's Chinatowns and gathered 69 stories from the locals there. And so these were stories that immigrants had carried with them from China and kind of kept in their communities. And so he collected those. And I believe Lawrence um, took them, selected, I think, around, you know, like 15 or so of the stories to um, write for young people. And they're fantastic. They're all sort of very myth Like there's a sense of legend and myth and a little bit of a dash of horror in them. A few of my favorites tend to have some of the more like scary <laughs> elements. I really loved scary stories when I was younger. And yeah, and I think as a Chinese American, especially me who doesn't necessarily feel that kinship with the mother country, you know, I think in English, I'm, you know, very. everyone says my Chinese is actually like second grade or third grade level. Um, but the idea that I've always wanted to n- understand and know more about the country that my parents came from, um, Lawrence was that person. He was able to sort of give me the stories that I craved that I couldn't really understand from my own parents because of the language barrier. Um, so yeah, so this is a very meaningful book for me. And I think, you know, it's often not listed in uh, amongst Lawrence's works you often hear about like dragon wings which are again amazing stories uh but uh my personal favorite has always been this short story collection
0: and there's divided up uh into in these five sections sort of these overarching thematic elements as there's stories about saving face about family responsibilities and so on and i'm just wondering it, it's a sort of reminder that Part of the these stories is having this uh, link back to China, but it's also uh, provide a reminder of like so many stories uh, about how to think about the world or how to live in the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, and I also think often like what are the stories they chose to remember and bring to this country in this new country that's not particularly welcome to them. And I think a lot of the stories are almost like survival tactics, you know, like ways, like the ideas of in like the, the, the talks about roots and family ties. Like this is how Chinese communities survived. Um, oftentimes when they were not allowed to integrate or assimilate into the dominant culture, they were relegated to like, essentially like Chinatown was considered ghettos back in the day. They weren't allowed to leave them. Um, so this idea of like bond, and kinship with one another within the community, I think is something that is tied throughout a lot of these short stories too, now that I'm thinking about it, like so much of it is about how to survive and also maintain a sense of identity to your own culture with each and also your bonds with each other.
0: And and you mentioned earlier, you know, one of the appeals of these stories is, you know, they're not just sort of dry stories teaching you a lesson. They're these fantastic elements. You know, you've got stories with monster rats knocking on walls and magical women spreaking out of melons. Uh you yeah. know, some are scary, some are funny, some are a mixture of both. And so a collection like this is really something uh for everyone. And what is it about these fantastic fantastical elements that really adds to the story and makes them makes the reader want to keep going?
1: Yeah. I mean, Speaking personally on my level, you know, growing up the way I did with most of my surroundings often being the same places, the same things, like I didn't really get to go to summer camp. I didn't really, you know, get to hang out with friends because my responsibility was to my parents and to help them out at the restaurant. It was quite boring, you know, and this idea that like, you know, not only, you know, again, this would have been the 90s where there isn't really the renaissance and focus on diverse children's literature as there is now, you know, Lawrence Yep's writing and this, this book in particular were one of the few times I could actually see myself and people who looked like me have these fantastical things happen to them. You know, my day job is actually um, for the science fiction fantasy imprint of random house. And so I work on, you know, science fiction fantasy, on the adult side all the time. And I again it all kind of came from the same place, I think, in which, you know, life was very boring at the restaurant. And this was one books were one of the few places that I could escape. And Lawrence Yap's writing was one of the few places I could escape, but also learn more about my own culture. And the other thing that I think is so interesting too, Lawrence Yap's writing is not just Chinese culture, it's particularly Southern Chinese culture. Oftentimes I get a little, not angry, but a little annoyed that oftentimes Chinese culture gets kind of turned into like a one, I am losing my words again today, but it becomes almost like a monoculture. Everyone kind of looks like, oh, the Chinese culture must be all the same, but it's not. It is extremely diverse and extremely different, both um, cuisine, both in culture, and also the Chinese um, immigration Trends also came in different waves. Uh, the early immigrants to the U.S. were from Guangdong because it was such a huge port city. And so most of the stories collected in Lawrence Yap's collection, which was, you know, again, tied back to the collections from the 1930s, those are stories from my parents' district, you know, because my parents are also from Guangdong and the Hong Kong area. And so I think it's, some, it's something that I'm I see more of these days because there's such a focus on diversity, but also thoughtful diversity. And the idea that, you know, it's not just one conglomeration of cultures, China is vast, is huge. And I think the more that you see of Chinese culture, the more you'll be able to differentiate um, what you're actually experiencing. But Lawrence Yep, I think, you know, because it was one of the few books out there has always really like stood out to me as uh, the vanguard.
0: And, and speaking of Lawrence Yep, like I said, um, these are, uh, the stories that were collected early in the 20th century and he sort of found these stories, but it isn't just, he isn't just the editor of this story. He takes these stories and, uh, he, he retells. And in other words, he, get, he brings these stories to life. He gives them voice. So I'm wondering just what is it about him as a writer, uh, that he does to these stories, uh, to, to really sort of, like I said, bring them to life and give them voice.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I think, and this actually kind of goes back to I think the work that I did with Hazel and Tyrus to the the idea of the interpreter, the idea of like you know how much of the artist and the authorship is kind of coming through because again, like you know Lawrence Yep is kind of taking these stories and refiltering them through his perspective, tying them together, adding you know potentially embellishments according to his own artistic um, liberties. And I often think about, you know, when I'm writing something about Hazel or Tyrus, am I doing them justice? Like, would they be happy that this is how I'm writing them? And I I often wonder, you know, because the two that I've written so far are, again, Hazel and Tyrus, their families immigrated from the same province that my family is from. And so I wanted to sort of take that commonality and interpret it as closely as I would hope that they would want to see it written. But it's always ever going to be a hope. Like, there's no way I can confirm, you know, as much as, you know, Tyrus's family tells me, oh, Tyrus would have been so proud. I'm always very curious about whether or not my little fingerprint on their story is doing them justice. Again, I've never gotten to chat with Lauren Siam. Maybe I will one day in the future, but I'd love to have that conversation with him because I do think it is a... A unique challenge to storytellers is, you know, everything that we do, what we're spinning in essence is, you know, a tale that we are in control of. We are weaving it. We are putting the pieces together and making the decision that this stitch needs to go there. That stitch needs to go there. It's it's interesting when you talk about it in terms of a nonfiction book. You stay true to the certain facts, but there are certain things, like you know, when I write about what Hazel thought when she was up in the sky, or there's um, a piece that in T- Paper Sun where I have Tyrus um, kind of mopping as a janitor because that's what he did when he was in art school to make extra money was to double as the janitor, and and you kind of take certain liberties about what might be going through their mind at that time, and you kind of have to make the most, the best guess, the with best intentions of what might be going through their mind. And yeah, I think that's you know a thing that I don't know that I can answer about Tongues of Jade without hearing from Lawrence um, how he felt taking those stories and interpreting them.
0: Yeah, it's always that delicate balance between being true to the source but at the same time thinking about the reader and wanting to connect to them as well.
1: Right, and tell something compelling.
0: Now, I do have to ask if you have um, a favorite story yourself. I do have to say, for me, the, the last story that the ghostly rhyme is my favorite that's about a, a, a scholar who uh, can't remember the last line of a poem and he dies and his ghost come back and all he's worried about is remembering the last line of the poem. And I just <laughs> thought that sounds just like me. Uh, so yeah. so that, that particularly appealed to me. But do you have your own favorite story of the collection?
1: So I, as I mentioned earlier, my favorites have always tend to be the more creepy ones. Uh, my favorite, I think, um, just flipping back recently, the Phantom Heart stood out to me just because the idea, so for background, um, this little folktale is about a shopkeeper who invites a little girl to live with him and his wife and the little girl turns out to be a monster who like eats his heart. <laughs> and and I think I'm a big horror movie buff that and this idea of sort of inviting someone in with the best of intentions, but then that person turns out to be a monster, but still like a vulnerable little girl. Like, how do you deal with this dichotomy and what it looks like? And again, it's just like a wonderfully creepy story. But I, what I really liked about it is that the husband and wife kind of work together. And I like to sort of see more portrayals of sort of, you know, Husbands and wives being on the same team. I think oftentimes in media, like the source of the conflict is often between the wife and the husband and like, oh, like so-and-so's cheating or so-and-so's doing, you know, as a terrible spouse. But the few times that you see them, like truly like looking out for one another isn't typically seen. And I think, you know, that probably stood out to me with the Phantom Heart. I think the fact that like, it is a happy story, Um, he ends up getting like a new heart (laughs) and, but he ends up being better for it.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh, it is a terrific story. It is a terrific story. (laughs) Is there a passage from the book that you'd like to share?
1: Um, let's see. I was thinking about this. I kind of wanted to read a little bit about, actually I was going to read the introduction a little bit. Just because I think that helps sell the book to everyone else, like all the, I think all the stories are so wonderful. Um, But if I like only read a passage out of one of them, it wouldn't like, it it would probably like end too quickly. So I was thinking um, I would just read the introduction if that's okay. In ancient times, the Chinese cover their dead with various pieces of jade. In those days, the Chinese believed that jade had the power to preserve the body. In one of the stories in this collection, the jade covers a pair of eyes, but were pieces cut to fit other parts of the body as well, including jade cut into the shape of a tongue with designs of cicadas carved onto the surface because cicadas sleep within the ground for a number of years before emerging again. Such pieces of jade were placed in the mouths of the dead, perhaps in the hope that they would speak again. Even now in Chinatown, you can buy jade with cicadas carved into them, though the seller may not understand their former use. Beyond that, though, every storyteller speaks with a tongue of jade, preserving an entire time period. My father would sometimes instruct me by telling a story. In the telling, he would frequently perform the dialogue for all the characters, so they came to life along with their surroundings. In the 19th century, a large number of Chinese men left southern China to work here in America. Because of harsh immigration laws, it was difficult for their wives and children to join them. I think it was with a sense of irony that they called themselves guests of the Golden Mountain, which is what they called America. Far away from their families, they told tales not only to remind themselves of home, but to show how a wise man could survive in a strange, often hostile land. However, by the 20th century, a number of men had been able to bring their families over here, and there were growing numbers of children with roots sunk deep into America as well as China. Tales would have educated them about the China that they had left, or perhaps never seen. More importantly the tales would have taught them how a true Chinese was to behave. In the 1930s, John Lee went into Oakland's Chinatown and gathered and translated 69 stories as part of a WPA project. At a later period, Professor Wolfram Eberhard collected more stories in the San Francisco's Chinatown. We have no time machine to take us into the past, but we have the tales, thanks to John Lee and Wolfram Eberhard. Through the storyteller's voice, we can slip for a moment through that verbal portal into a vanished world's where Chinese in America call themselves guests of the Golden Mountain. And I love that. I think that also nicely ties into what I try to do with my picture books, the, the idea of preserving these stories and making sure that, you know, Chinese Americans of note have a chance to be, you know, taught and, you know, kids can learn about them.
0: Well, Julie, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today, both about your own books, The Fearless Flights, and also about Paper Sun as well, and for talking to me about uh, uh, Tongues of Jade, which is a book that I had not read before. So it's always great to come across a book that I uh, haven't read and give me a chance to read it and to talk to you about it today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's been wonderful.
0: You can find Julie's website at julielungbooks.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jliemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dream Gardens JLM. Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.